Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Salone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like more information about our show, please go to Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hey, Kim, how are you today? Hey, Mark. Kim, I'm very excited. We actually have a question about how do we get topics that we discuss all the time. And I'd like to just tell our listeners how we do this process. As part of our jobs, we do research a lot and read a lot of articles of what's going on in the wine world. That leads to either daily or a weekly blog. And then I take that blog and I send it to you, Kim. Right. And then I take a look at all the articles and have a very nice time reading through all of them. I can uh, generally skip over the ones that have to do with, uh, I don't know, celebrity endorsed new alcohol products and yeah. lots of things about beer in there beer and, because, wa- and liquor because of course it's for the whole store and not just for the wine uh, section but it's it's really nice to read all of the wine articles and just see kind of what's going on in the world and they range everything from what is the hot wine to use in a summer cocktail to these really sort of geeky science heavy research topics so what I do is I will then go through that whole list and figure out what I think is most useful for people to know. So yes, we like those geeky topics, but sometimes they're not things that are going to be the most useful for you in helping you buy a bottle of wine or appreciate something a little bit more. So I try to curate it that way to get some some useful information for you, the consumer. And just so everybody knows, we don't discuss what topics we pick until we sit down to talk to you. So we hope that makes it interesting for everybody. And we always have a difference of opinion on things. So that that kind of makes it a little fun too. Today's first topic is from 750.com about the science of wine oxidation. And now we're going to hit with some science geeky wine material, Kim. What does it actually mean to say that a wine is oxidized, oxidated, or oxidative? All of these terms are used somewhat interchangeably, I find, when I'm speaking to people about wine. There are some slight technical differences between all of them, but at the end of the day, what it comes down to is when wine is exposed to oxygen, certain things will happen to that wine. So, I mean, wine is a fruit product. And just like when you cut an apple, it'll start to turn brown. When you cut a banana, it'll start to turn brown. When you expose your glass of wine to oxygen, it will start to turn brown. So we kind of like to say that all wine tends to brown. So red wines will fade away into sort of a brickish color and white wines will move up into to a brownish color if they've been exposed to lots of oxygen. So we're talking about like not just days, but weeks and months and years, sometimes in the bottle, sometimes in the glass. And I like how you use the fruit thing. We both use that example a lot for education. I think that is the best way to explain this oxidized thing because the grapes, obviously fruit. Uh, One of the things we like to talk about a lot too is oxidized. Usually it's not always a fault. It's Sometimes it's controlled for a good reason in wine. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you might have a wine that is somewhere along the continuum between a little bit of oxygen exposure, which is good. And this is white wines and red wines going all the way to 
the other side where, yeah, there's too much and now it's impacting what the wine is really supposed to be all about. But there are some winemakers that the style of wine that they're making is an oxidative style. So they are actually intentionally exposing their wine to oxygen for a number of different reasons. So this can be a good descriptor if you hear someone saying, oh, this wine is oxidized and they're explaining things and you're thinking, this sounds bad. There are good descriptors associated with oxidation that people like. So I guess what I was thinking on this subject, Kim, is when someone comes up to you and tells you about a wine that they like and you don't like it, how do you approach that? You don't want to be negative to them that you don't like it or they shouldn't like what they like, but how do you approach that? Because I kind of relate that to oxidized wines. Yeah. um, And I try to just say that what you like is what you like and what I like is what I like. And that doesn't mean that what I like is good and what you like is bad. And we try not to use the good bad terms because there are some very good wines out there well made exactly what they're supposed to be that just have particular flavors that person a might like and person b might not like so there are some styles of oxidized wines that do kind of fall into that category of you might love them and I might really not like them, but that doesn't mean that they're that they're bad. There's a difference between the wine you don't like and a wine that is a bad wine. Yeah, I like. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I, I, you know, I'm thinking guess of a political way to say you, know, you don't like it. So I'm, to me, I just say it's not my style. Yeah, because just, I love oxidized wines. There's no reason for me to get on my high horse and be like, well, I like this wine, therefore it's it's better than the wine that you like. It's like no, but you like oxidized wines. I like I See, like the profile. <laughs> Like, so, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like the profile. And I mean, this oxidation can happen in all phases of winemaking or in the bottle aging process. How would you define? I mean, people are right now thinking, well, what is this? What, right. what does this wine taste like? What does it smell like? That was like? exactly what I was going to ask you because you might have better descriptors for it because you like it. So wh- what what terms do you put? Well, the most common example would be like sherry. Mm-hmm. So I, I always get it. I love the, sh- the like the nuttiness of sherry. Right. So I would say that oxidation to me creates a nuttiness. And one of the things that comes from oxidation, it, it gives wine, I, I would say a body to it. It's a different body in a wine. Does that, does that make sense to you? Kim, for me, it's more of a flavor. I, I, for me, it's not much of a textural thing. It's definitely more of a flavor and an aroma thing. Yeah, see, yeah, we're always different. But yeah. I, I think to me, it's a complexity that other wines don't get from that process. But unless you're just, I mean, if you're just talking about sherry and oxidative sherry flavors and notes, then I do think that there is a textural difference. But I'm not sure that that comes from the oxidation. I think that has a little bit more to do with like the, 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 me- no, the no. method and the, the, the yeast strains that are used and the different different ways that acid is impacted by those yeasts. That's that's where my mind goes when yeah. I talk about like dry sherries that are fermented with floor and that have this like apple skin kind of note and a somewhat oxidative kind of a flavor to it. I go to apple. That yeah. seems to be like that brown apples thing. And this article also kind of put its finger on raisins. So a little bit of like a raisiny note. And then I kind of I sat back and I was like, oh yeah. When you have those yellow raisins and they're not green like they were when they were fresh, but they have that slight little brown hint to them and then the, f- the flavor of of one of those uh sultana raisins that that kind of tips me off to the the oxidation thing too yeah they was they described it as a stewed fruit type mm, profile mm-hmm. which I, I agree and i can get that kind of apple different apple like a stewed fruit yeah. too i guess so. that that 
putting your finger on cooked, like a, like a cooked fruit kind of a flavor. That that makes sense to me too in my mind when I'm trying to really figure out a good way to describe those aromas and those flavors. So a lot of the ones we're talking, it's either bad where a wine gets oxidized when it shouldn't be getting oxygen. And then there's the wines that are made where they control how much oxygen is in a barrel to let the wine sit on a, on more oxygen than normal. Right. And this is, this is an important thing to talk about when it comes to winemaking, because often when we talk about the topic of oxygen and winemaking, it's a negative. But in this case, and it, this kind of makes people scratch their heads a little bit too, when we talk about barrels and how wine is made and we say, yeah, you know, sometimes the better wines come from being aged in oak barrels because it can get a little bit of oxygen that way. And people sort of scratch their head and look at us funny and be like, but I thought oxygen was bad. But in this case, during the winemaking process, oxygen does almost the reverse of what it does after it's in the bottle. It does these good things where it kind of softens the tannins a little bit and it, it makes the color more vibrant and, and all these important things that will make a longer living, better quality wine. Yeah, that's a great description. And also there are some oxidized wines that they fortify them after so it kind of preserves that oxidation better than wines that are not fortified. Right, and that's back to that that sherry topic again. Right, so what about Kim, when, when we took uh, French wine education. There was a very interesting oxidized wine from the Jura region. Mm-hmm. Would you like to just give a little bit about that? To our sure. List? So there are certain styles that will be intentionally oxidized and it, it's sort of got a family resemblance to sherry, but really is kind of its own its own creature. And it, it's tough to describe. It's got, it's got different acidity to it. So the, the feel of it is different. The texture is different. And it, yeah, it comes back to this sort of nutty, savory sort of a flavor. See, that was my trick to get you back to the, the yeah. nuttiness, right? Nutty. So, well, I mean, with these the wines in this region are aged six years. They put in a barrel with and let oxygen eat away at this wine for six years. So it's a totally different profile than anything you've ever tried. And there are a lot of traditional, other traditional wines from different parts of the world that are made this way. And it's kind of a trendy style these days. This kind of goes back to the natural wine movement and orange wines because the wines come out of the barrel with this real orangey color because of all that oxidation. So we see we see a, a few winemakers now really experimenting with this style. And yeah, that, that classic one from the Jura is sort of the one that people reference and look look back to. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim and Mark. For more information about me, you can visit me at vinitaswineworks.com. And for more information about Mark and his business, please go to franklinliquors.com. It's a very interesting fight going on in the California courts right now about labeling laws and a, a little bit of a loophole that has been present that allows for out-of-state, out-of-California wineries to buy grapes or buy juice from California and make wines with it and be able to put the place where those grapes came from on their label in their marketing, which a lot of California wine brewers are, are really shaking their heads and saying, uh-uh, we want to be able to control the reputation of our grapes because it's really only us that should be making it. So yeah, we're, we're seeing some interesting things referring to this topic kind of all over the place. Yeah, big part of this was in Texas. Uh, you're in Texas and you're a winery and you order grapes from Napa. So now you bring them to your winery in Texas and you ferment them in your bottle 
bottle in it, you're saying Napa Cabernet in my Texas winery. So now Napa is saying you, you can't say that because you're not in Napa. But the loophole, Kim, you're talking about is as long as you sell that product within the state you made it in. So if as long as they sell it in Texas, it's legal. If you go to ship it outside of Texas, then it's illegal. I think this is such an interesting topic because we have all of this, all of these, uh, you know, work that goes into creating what in the U.S. are called AVAs. And in other different countries, they're called appellations. Um, you may have seen them on French labels or, or Italian labels. And, and we do have a system of that for U.S. wineries when there are protected names that are designated in certain areas with certain boundaries and sometimes with certain winemaking styles, but not usually. It's it's usually more just the designation of where the grapes come from. And, and this is, you know, this is a really interesting way to get around it, that you can take that name that has been created and protected by somebody else, buy their grapes, make your own wine, but then put their name on it, essentially. Yeah, so you can see why the Texas winery, this is good for sales because they're using high quality grapes from a very famous region. Right, because people see the name Napa and they're like, oh, you know, this must be pretty good because these are Napa grapes. But then the, the growers and the winemakers back in Napa are like, whoa, hold on there. Yeah, the Napa people are in the AVA system that Kim mentioned. So by that law, they have to have 85% of the grapes that they use must be from that AVA that they use. So say Napa grapes, they must come from Napa. It also must be made and fermented in the appellation that they're, they're registering. So Napa and they, but they can sell it in any state. They can ship it out of the state. So I guess they feel because of all the work they put in to protect that region, now people in other states are kind of taking advantage of things they didn't earn maybe. Right. And I think that this is an interesting twist on the concept of terroir. So when we say terroir, we mean it it's this French term that really boils down to that place has uniqueness and place has a flavor and that where the grapes are grown matters to the resulting flavor and style of the wine. So this is almost like saying that, well, it's not only where the grapes are grown, but the wine has to be made here in order to also be legitimate and also kind of carry that concept of terroir. And when I originally read this article, which was from the Napa Valley Register, I kind of thought that it was a little hypocritical, actually, to be like, okay, you know, we're all focused on terroir. It's the grapes, it's the grapes, the wine is made in the vineyard, yada, yada, yada. But then they're going to turn around and be like, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. If you're going to take our grapes someplace else, it's not just where they're grown, it's also where the wine is made. So that kind of had me scratching yeah, my head a little bit. That's a good point because they are helping spread the word about Napa. But I mean, technically, if I, as a consumer, if I bought a wine in Texas and it said Napa grapes, I know it's not grown there. I mean, wouldn't you know as a consumer? It's you know, I don't. I that. would, but I. So you think it's deceiving? They're thinking more it's deceiving, or they just want to keep. I think they just want. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Yeah. I, I think it's that they want to keep Napa grapes and anything that has Napa on the label to have a full association with Napa, California, and their appellation. But yeah, I feel like it's kind of this little this gray area. Yeah, you so know, it's, it's yeah, the I'm, same thing with like champagne. The Champenois don't want anything to have the word champagne on it because it sort of muddies their brand. And I think that 
this is uh, kind of cut from the same cloth. So they'll have no problem, in, which is very common. Wineries out of the state of California say it's California wine made in another state, but they have an issue with the specific appellation. Right. And that's so. what this comes down to. It's, a, it's, it's because Napa is the name of an AVA. If they were to put Napa County, which I don't think, Sonoma County is, a, is an AVA, but I don't think Napa County is, then that would be fine because it's not it's not an AVA. You know, you can put, I'm just going to pull this one out there because there's no winery down, no, no AVA of San Diego, but you could say San Diego grapes and nobody would probably have a problem with that because there's no governmentally protected AVA with that name. But it's when you're getting into these more specific regions that I think that that's what people are having a problem with. Yeah, so I think as a label geek, I would rather see that it's a Texas winery saying it's a California wine and then maybe somewhere in a tech note or when they're selling the wine, they say, well, we buy grapes from Napa, but not put that on the label. Right. And I think see. that 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 is very consumer friendly too. Like I feel like if you put, if you're making wine in a state that generally doesn't grow grapes, but you don't put anything on there about where those grapes are grown, then I don't think that that's doing the consumer a service. I think the more information that you have about where those grapes come from is important. And, and consumers, I think, are looking for that. And there are incidences in other parts of the world where winemakers have sort of snuck in grapes from other countries and not necessarily made it known. And there's been big stinks about it. It, was, it just happened in New Zealand. Big producer that is available here uh, called Brancott, their parent company, started buying in grapes from Australia and putting them in their regular wine, which actually isn't a wine that's sold here. It's more their, their domestic wine. But because the brand has such strong associations with New Zealand, no one even gave a second thought for the fact that it didn't even say New Zealand on the label anymore. So the winemaker wasn't trying to hide the fact that there were Australian grapes in there, but it was just such an association with New Zealand that it was just sort of assumed that all the grapes in there were from New Zealand. Yeah, that's a great that's a great example of other parts of the world. In the United States, you see this commonly on the label where wineries just get so big, they run out of the grapes. So you'll see a California vineyard, and if you read the fine print, it'll say Chile or, or yep. Argentina. And more commonly now, I'm seeing it just says America. I've seen that too. Have you seen that? Yeah, and it's very interesting because like we said, you know, if it's a brand that has really significant associations with a particular country, Woodbridge or Behringer, any of those big ones that you're, you're automatically, your brain is going, oh, California. And then it just says America or the fine print really does say Chile. And you're like, oh, okay. So, but you have to look for it. Like, it's not that they're really trying to trick you, but they're not also coming out and saying Chilean wine from, you know, whatever yeah. big producer. So they're honestly it, telling you, you just have to yeah, find it. Yeah. You it, have to know to look for it too. That's one of the things we talk about a lot. And I like to use the example of people might be thinking, well, what does it matter? It's Cabernet. It's a brand, like you said, it's Behringer. I know them. I trust them. Well, to me, it's like, it's a, think of it as a big circle. That wine can be from the United States. And that's the outer circle. And then it can be from a state like California. Now you're kind of working into a smaller part of the map. Um, then you can go to like an, from California, you can go to an AVA or Napa. Then from Napa, you can go to Atlas Peak. And then from Atlas Peak, you can go to a vineyard. So your bullseye keeps going down. So on that label, it does make a difference. The region is getting smaller. So the quality of grapes tends to be better the smaller the, the region you go to. Right. And that's a, a general rule of thumb. You know, usually it's the broader the area that the grapes are coming from, a little bit lower the quality because it tends to be a little bit more mass produced. Whereas if you get to the center of that bullseye, not only is it smaller production, so there's more kind of hands-on winemaking there, but back to this concept of terroir, it's generally assumed that the smaller the location, the more individual the flavor of those grapes 
grapes are going to be. And so then therefore the resulting wine is going to be of higher quality. That doesn't always work out. Uh, but as a rule of thumb in the wine world, that's that's kind of how it's expected to work. Yeah. And, and saying it doesn't work out, that could be the perfect example for this Texas wine. Or you, you get this Texas wine, it's Napa, you're thinking, wow, it's Napa grapes, it's going to be good. But you know nothing about how they processed it. Right. And, and you know, back to this Napa thing, I think, I think that's one of the problems that the folks in Napa have too. It's that when they are growing their own grapes and then they are making their own wine, the, those grapes don't have to travel very far and, and they have their eye out on how the winemaking process is going as well. Because as much as the quality of the grapes coming from the vineyard matter, and they matter a lot, it also matters what's going on in the winery. So once those grapes are gone and gone to a different state, they don't have any oversight as far as how the winemaking is done. And and I don't know if, if a lot of places do pay a, a whole lot of attention as far as, well, we want to know how you're making your, your wines, Mr. Napa Valley Winery here. But I, I'm sure that it does matter because they put a lot of of effort into growing the fruit. So can I can imagine that they probably put an awful lot of effort into making sure that the end result coming out of the winery is also as high quality as they'd like it to be. You are listening to The Wonderful World of Wines. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. If you'd like more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to find out more information about our show, please go to Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we're going to talk about another one of Kim's favorite subjects. First, it's French news. And second, it's bubbly news. It's from uh, cellators.com, which is a a French blog site about a forgotten sparkling wine in France called Cremants. So Kim, explain to our listeners first the definition of this sparkling wine. So Cremant is a sparkling wine very much like Champagne, but not from the region of Champagne in France. So how I like to explain it is French Champagne in everything but the region that it comes from. So there are these other sparkling wines that are made in France, have been made for quite a while, some with very... You know, traditional methods like they use in champagne. Some have a similar style. Some are made from different grape varieties than champagne is, so have slightly different flavors. But one of the big benefit I see in them is that they've got good high quality and then the price tag is not as high as champagne. So I kind of feel like it's a win-win for consumers. And if you like champagne, if you like sparkling wine, I feel like they're a real bargain and they're absolutely delicious. I love to drink them myself. Champagne style at Prosecco prices. That's the way I like to That's put a really it, good right? way to put it more like kava prices i'm yeah. not so sure about prosecco prices and a lot of times you recommend these to people and i think they're really shocked at the value it's, mm -hmm. it's made the same way as champagne is made most of the time the same grapes maybe a few others are put in here but the styles are so similar and the value is phenomenal i liked the idea that this is sort of the it's the kava of france kava is the sparkling wine of spain and it doesn't have to be tied to a particular place that it comes from yes there is a center of production of cava in Spain, but you can make a cava anywhere in Spain and still call it cava. And Cremant kind of falls into a similar category where I would say it's like eight out of the 10 regions of France that produce wine produce a Cremant or a style very similar uh, to this. And then they're allowed to put Cremant on the label. So it does make for some nice variety and a lot of different things to choose from. Some are white, some are pink. Most of them are, are on the drier side and they're just really lovely. There are most of them we can find for like under $20 a bottle. So 
a really good bargain in sparkling wine. I love using the historical information about Cremants when we do events about sparkling because people are just amazed. Everybody knows the famous Dom Perignon, but they don't know the history about how these a Cremant was actually made 150 years before a champagne was produced. Right. Everyone thinks of champagne as the quintessential sparkling wine. And we know about Dom Perignon and we know about Veuve Clicquot and we know about all these personalities associated with champagne. But sparkling wine was actually invented in Limoux, which is in the south of France. And there is still a sparkling wine tradition down there. And you can still buy their wines and still drink their wines. So they're the ones that really are tied to the establishment of the style and the invention of the style of sparkling wine, not champagne. And that one always like, I, I agree when we do classes and people are like, huh, I never knew that. I'm like, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. History is a huge thing about when you're buying a wine or when you're bringing a wine to someone, especially a sparkling wine. And if you have this story behind it, when you're opening it, just to me, it's a, it's a great background to celebrate with. Of the regions, Kim, which do you, is your favorite to buy a Cremant from or to drink? in France? It's a toss-up for me between the ones from the Loire Valley and the ones from Alsace. So what I like about them is that they actually are a little bit different from Champagne. So what generally tends to happen in Cremant production is that they use whatever the native grapes are that go into the rest of their wines. So if you're talking about a Bordeaux Cremant, they might be using Sauvignon Blanc and maybe a little bit of Merlot that has been pressed without contact with the skins or the other grape varieties that are used in Bordeaux. And when you're in the Loire Valley, they do the same thing. So Saumur Cremant is generally made from Chenin Blanc, which I really like as a sparkling wine base. And then when you're talking about Alsace, you know, there's no Chardonnay grown in Alsace. There's other grape varieties. So there's Riesling and there's a lot of Pinot Noir and there are other grapes like Pinot Blanc. So those grapes are the ones that go into the Cremant. And my current favorite and has been for a while is a Rosé Cremant from Alsace, which is made from Pinot Noir. And it's pink and it's bubbly and it's delicious. And it has has a little bit of that earthiness that you associate with good quality rosé champagne, but at a third or a quarter of the price. The Alsatian Pinot Noir is, I think, the first wine we ever agreed on <laughs> Maybe. tasting the wines, right? So, <laughs> And I use it all the time, and we use it in our classes. And, and frankly, it's a style that's really, really trendy right now. So it, it's been nice to I don't know, kind of feel like we were at the forefront of that one. We've been using that one and tasting that one for years. And maybe it's just kind of that both sparkling and rosé are trending right now, but you put them together and, and it's it's a really nice, nice style. I think originally it was the geek in me that found that, you know, that's the only red grape grown in Alsace and they made it into a, a sparkling. And I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> something there's something totally about different. this. So that's how I think I originally discovered it. But you, getting back to Loire, Chenin Blanc, we always talk about one of, I love the grape. And I think in this style, it's just phenomenal. Have you ever seen Rosé Pinot Noir sparkling from Loire? I mean, mm. they do grow some nice Pinot yeah. Noir or Cab Franc sparkling? No, I don't think so I have. So we have to find that because I think, you know, those are two of my favorite other grapes. And It would be really interesting to compare a rosé sparkling Cremant from Alsace with one from the Loire Valley and see see the differences. Um, the thing that I like about the Chenin-based ones is that Chenin Blanc does have really nice high acidity, which I feel you need for sparkling wine. So it doesn't taste kind of flabby and it stands up with all the bubbles and it all kind of works together. And Chenin is really great for that. And it's a grape variety that's very versatile. So in that part of France, they use it to make dry wines and sweet wines and still wines and sparkling wines and like the whole gamut of styles. So I think it really just 
plays really nicely into this idea of using it for a sparkling wine as well. I think we just gave a good example of how to our listeners of how we get ideas to do tastings because now I have like 10 ideas of, of rosé, cremant tastings so cool. and regional. <laughs> I mean, you could break it down by region, by grape. So uh, this just opens up so many other ideas now. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. Please visit us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Shoot us any questions, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you. Bye, bye, bye.